Well, good morning again. How is everybody? Awesome. That is, that is so awesome. We, uh, we got an update from uh, David and Bethany, by the way. David and Bethany Jackson, you know, are in Oregon right now. They've been home for the better part of a year. Uh, and uh, and uh, getting back into Malaysia hasn't been as easy as they... I shouldn't have said that. Uh, getting back there hasn't been as easy as they... Uh, as they would have wished uh, because, uh, because of COVID and other considerations. But uh, we heard from them this week that, uh, that their visas now have been fully approved. And the last step, all three of them have their visas, and the last step is to just send it to the embassy. It's been sent off to the embassy, uh, and, and the, the embassy now will have to approve this, uh, their, their visas before they're able to actually move on. So they're waiting for that approval so that they know when the date uh, actually is so that they can, uh, don't worry about the dancing screen over there. I, I can dance too. Um, uh, th once their visas are approved, then they'll be able to decide on the date when they're going to be going back, and they just need, they need wisdom. David, in the meantime, has severed the tendon in uh, the little finger on his right hand and is wearing a rather... <laughs> ungainly, super huge kind of a thing, trying to keep that, uh, that finger immobilized, and that's going to impact packing and carrying suitcases and everything else, so you can be praying for them. Also, please be praying this Friday evening and Saturday morning as our core team meets together for its annual planning, for their annual planning session. Um, we're looking forward to that time. We'll be talking a little bit about discipleship and, and trying to put some things in place for this year that well, haven't been in place for the last little bit, maybe so, uh, a few seminars on parenting, uh, on, uh, on marriage, on, uh, on counseling, and other things that, that we can provide training for you, uh, even uh, how to study the Word and, and actually be able to communicate the Word effectively. Those are all things that are, that are in the potential works right now, but uh, the, the core team will need guidance as we try to sort that out. So this Friday, and Saturday, Friday evening and Saturday morning, Please be praying about that. This morning, we'll be, uh, we'll be continuing our studies in Paul's first letter to Timothy in a series entitled, Be Strong in Grace, and this is part four, and entitled, Using the Law Properly. I've been praying that God would really speak to us as we look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 11. Last week, Brian walked us through verses 5 to 7 of chapter 1. And ask us a rather colorful question. <laughs> What's love got to do with it? I was so thankful that he didn't start singing and dancing when he said that. But he went on to say that if love is just a secondhand emotion, like the song says, then love really has nothing to do with much of anything at all. But, love is, but real love, true love, is not a secondhand emotion. In fact, it's not an emotion at all. Uh, it's an action. Love is an action that does everything that's necessary for the good of the one who is being loved. And it does that without setting any conditions on that action. Brian reminded us last week that Jesus loved his followers, and he expressed that with action. He got down and he washed their feet there in the upper room. Paul went on to explain in that passage from last week that we are to love one another by ministering to one another. And ministering is just a fancy church word for serving. We need to express our love for one another by serving one another. In other words, we're to love one another by serving one another just as Jesus loved his followers by serving them. 
But that leads to the question, where does this love for one another come from? Brian covered this last week. Is it something that we have to work up so that we can remember to serve one another? Well, Paul answered that question in the passage from last week. He told us that love isn't something that we work up. Instead, if our hearts are pure, our consciences are good, and our faith is sincere, then our love for one another will just flow from that. Keep in mind that that Paul had previously told Timothy to command, (laughs) that's the word that he uses, to command certain people in the fellowship there in Ephesus to stop teaching false doctrines, and quite frankly, that doesn't sound very loving. I hope you, (laughs) at least it doesn't to me, doesn't sound like loving, being loving at all. Paul was not trying to be harsh with the false teachers. That was not his goal. And we know that because he actually said that the goal of that command, of Paul issuing this, this instruction to Timothy, that he command people to stop teaching false doctrine, the goal of that command was actually love. I know that it doesn't sound loving when we command people to stop teaching. But we have to remember that those people who were teaching false doctrines were undermining the purity of the gospel. And Paul loved the Jesus followers in Ephesus too much for them to hear a a bent, twisted, and misshapen gospel. Remember, the gospel, the good news about Jesus, is an incredibly simple message. And over the last two weeks, we've looked twice at, at least twice at this passage, to remind ourselves of what the gospel really is. Read along with me there. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried And then he was raised again on the third day, according to the Scriptures. I want want you to pay particular attention to that one phrase there in verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. I passed it on to you as of first importance. I talk to people all the time who struggle to understand God's Word when they read it. Sometimes it's because they're reading in a formal translation like the King James or, or, or the RSV. Uh, sometimes it's just because the stuff that's being talked about in the passages, well, it's just hard to understand. And I have to say, when somebody says, I, I don't always understand what I read, I have to say, I get it. The Bible's a good book. It really is, but it's also a big book, and it's full of complicated ideas. And I can tell you that one lifetime, I I promise you this, one lifetime is just not enough to work your way through all of that complexity. I mean, the Bible talks about ecclesiology, demonology, angelology, soteriology, bibliology, eschatology, theology, Christology, pneumatology, and a whole lot of other ologies. They're, They're all through there. And I, for one, have to say that that can lead to confusiology if you're not careful. That's that's really what you'll be majoring in by the time you're done. Those are big words because those are big terms. And before I I say anything else, I want to say that if you're able to define all those terms and flesh out what they mean for us today, then I truly admire you. I don't mean to undermine that in any way. You don't get to that point without doing some serious homework over many years. But if you can't define those terms and don't want to understand what difference they make, then I want to reassure you of something. You can still be a follower of Jesus 
if you can't define or fully understand all of those, ter those terms, all those doctrines. So what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that to be, a good, to be a follower of Jesus, to be part of God's kingdom, to be saved from your sin, you don't need to understand ecclesiology. Demonology, angelology, soteriology, bibliology, eschatology, theology, Christology, or pneumatology. But to be a follower of Jesus, to be part of God's kingdom, to be saved from your sin, you do need to understand this message that Paul shared with us, passed on to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 4. And I say that because Paul says that this simple message of the gospel is the message that he passed along to us as of first importance. In other words, first and foremost, you must understand and be able to explain the gospel. That means that if you don't understand soteriology and you can't explain eschatology, there will be likely no long-term effects on your life. Let me bless you with that news. But let me reiterate here, the gospel is the good news that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. And listen to me. If you don't understand or can't explain the gospel, then your eternal future is in, is in jeopardy. And not only that, but if you don't understand or can't explain the gospel then the eternal future of everyone within your sphere of influence is in jeopardy as well. And that may sound over the top to some of you, and it may seem like I'm making too much of this, but if you're feeling that way, I want you to look back again at verse 2 up there on the screen. By this gospel, you are saved. By this message, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. If you don't cling to the gospel, if you don't protect the gospel in your own thinking and, the, and in the thinking of everybody that's in your sphere of influence, then you've believed in vain. What you've believed isn't actually the gospel, and we'll come to that in a, in a little bit. What I hear Paul saying there is that he taught a whole bunch of things to the people who lived in Corinth, a whole bunch. And he's aware that not everyone could or would understand all that Paul had said to them or wrote to them as he, as, he made, as he engaged in ministry with them. But there was one thing that he taught them that was not up for grabs and not open for debate. There was one thing that he taught them that was not okay for them to not understand. There was one thing that he taught them that was of first importance. Christ Jesus died for our sins according to the Scripture. He was buried and he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that right there is the hope that all of us and any of us have. That we will see Jesus someday we become part of God's kingdom right here on planet Earth. That message right there is the message that makes the difference. That's the one you have to understand. That's the one you have to be able to explain. It's that important. And Paul spent his life fighting tooth and nail with anyone, anyone who added to that simple message or detracted from it. And eventually Paul was executed because he refused to allow anyone to confuse or twist that simple message of the gospel in any way. 
And I'm telling you this morning that if the message of the gospel is worth dying for, then doggone it, it's worth living for. And that's also why I've told you from this pulpit, and I mean it when I say it, that if I ever, if I ever add to, detract from, alter, confuse, or change that message in any way, you should command me to stop teaching and order me to step down from my responsibilities. I mean that with all my heart. In, in other words, come and talk to me as kindly as you can and invite me to come back to the truth. But in the end, if I refuse to come back to the truth and I continue to corrupt the gospel, then the gospel must be more important to you than I am. You must insist on keeping the gospel pure, even if it means ending your relationship with me. I count on you for that. I am that intentional about the pure simplicity of the message of the gospel. And I'm saying that because of what Paul wrote to the, the churches in Galatia. Galatians 1, 6 through 9 says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, we apostles, including me, Paul says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one that we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. That's anathema in the Greek. As we've already said, verse 9, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Let them be anathema to you. Paul was dead serious, literally, about the message of the gospel. We need to be just as serious as we seek to understand that simple message and explain it to other people. Don't twist the message of the gospel in any way and don't allow anyone else to twist the message of the gospel in any way, including me. Well, it's time to move on from our review so that we have time to discuss the passage we'll be unpacking today. And you know that we always begin unpacking a passage by reading that passage aloud together. So if you would, stand with me as we read aloud from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 11. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. Read aloud with me. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. Thanks. You can take your seat, confident that God blesses, will, always blesses us with his word, Whenever we, with his truth, whenever we read his word. And does, the God's word and God's truth are interchangeable. You've often heard me say that whenever followers of Jesus begin to push on the darkness, the darkness always and inevitably pushes back. That's how it works. And that, in a nutshell, um, is, is the story of the first century church. Th those first believers there had, had been given a crystal clear simple message. And God intended that that message, the message of the gospel, 
He intended that that is the power that saves people from among every people group on earth. It's, he gave us the gospel, and remember, as we looked at in the past, the gospel doesn't contain power. The gospel is the power of God for every people group on earth. Well, the church still has that commission from Jesus to go and make disciples of all people groups. In other words, our commission is to go and shine the light of the gospel in the darkness that, that surrounds us in our community and around the world. And you've often heard me say that today there are still 6,500 unreached people groups on planet Earth who have not heard that simple message of the gospel, that Jesus died for them, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day. But as we take that message into our community or around the world, we're pushing on the darkness. And as we push on the darkness, we can be sure that the darkness will push back. But so let's remember, the gospel is the power of God that saves people. And I need you to understand this morning that the enemy can't do anything to rob the gospel of its power. God built it in, and the enemy can't do anything to rob the gospel of its power. So let's think about this. If someone's pointing a loaded gun at your chest, a high-caliber weapon, and that person pulls the trigger, the power that's built into the gun is going to take you down, right? Well, no, because I wear a bulletproof vest. Work with me, will you? Yeah, it's going to take you down. There's a power built into the gun that's going to take you down. That's because you can't take the power out of the gun that that person is holding. And as testament to that, the, the, you know, a deputy, when he pulls somebody out and arrests him, if they pull a gun on the deputy, he pulls his gun and now he's pointing, and he doesn't say, unload your weapon. <laughs> it's not the bullets, it's the gun that has the power because the bullets, he, he, well, he doesn't tell them to unload their weapon because he knows he's not going to take the power out of the gun, especially if a round is chambered. That's because you can't take the power out of the gun that that person is holding. So you can't take the power out of the gun, but what might you be able to do to survive having a gun pointed at you? You can't take the power of the gun, but you might be able to take the gun out of the hand of the person who's holding it. And that is exactly how the darkness has historically pushed back on the light of the gospel. Satan can't take the power out of the gospel, but what if he could take the gospel out of our hands? What if he could do that? And how would the darkness take the gospel out of our hands? By twisting it and torquing it, by twisting the gospel and turning it into something else. And that is essentially the story of the book of Acts. The early church was pushing on the darkness with a simple Light with the message, the simple message of the gospel. And the darkness began pushing back by twisting the message of the gospel into something that it was not. That is church history in a nutshell. Paul and the early church followers took the simple message of the gospel all over the world of their day. And all throughout the book of Acts, the powers of darkness were pushing back against those early Jesus followers. The powers of darkness, so that we're clear on this, I'll say it again, the powers of darkness didn't push back by trying to rob the gospel of its power. Instead, the darkness pushed back by trying to rob the Jesus followers of the gospel. The darkness did that by trying to get the Jesus followers to change the simple message of the gospel. That's happened historically. 
And the way the darkness did that in the book of Acts was so insidious. They tried to pressure the Jesus followers into telling people that they could not become a Jesus follower unless they became a Jew first and kept the law. The people who were insisting on that, the people who were teaching that, were called Judaizers. Their claim was that God's law was good and perfect and that the only way to become part of God's kingdom was to become a Jew first. To them, Judaism was the doorway that opened into the kingdom of God. After all, that's the doorway through which they all entered prior to the death of Christ. And how do you become a Jew? Well, you become a Jew by keeping God's law. So the Judaizers believed that God's law was good and perfect and that the only way to become a part of God's kingdom was first to become a Jew by keeping the law. And in this passage this morning, Paul is going to tell us that the Judaizers only had it half right. Paul is going to tell us that the law is indeed good. But in order for the law to be good, it has to be used properly. And then Paul's going to explain, he's, he's going to go, over the, go us one better in this passage by explaining the proper way to use the law. And it, I'm trusting it's going to be enlightening. But to set the stage for the passage this morning, I need to tell you a story from God's Word. <laughs> surprise, surprise. I'm going to tell a story from God's Word. This story happened in the book of Acts, but this story doesn't come from the book of Acts. It comes from Paul's letter to the Galatian churches, where Paul tells about something that happened when he was ministering in Galatia and the apostle Peter stopped by. I'll tell the story in the first person. I hope that's okay because that's the way Paul tells it as he writes to the churches in Galatia. And with that background, this is the story from God's Word from Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 16. I was busy ministering in the city of Antioch of Pisidia, not the, not the Antioch that sent me out as a missionary, but in Antioch of Pisidia, and we received word that Peter was coming to visit. Not long after he arrived, I had a face-to-face -face confrontation over something with him that, that he had been doing during his visit. He actually visited for, for a fair space of time, and, and in the early days of his visit, he used to eat and fellowship with the Gentiles, the, you know, the people who weren't Jewish. But sometime after Peter arrived, some men arrived from Jerusalem. Turns out that James had sent them from Jerusalem to Antioch of Pisidia, and let me step out of character here a minute and step away from this story for a moment to say that the James that sent those men out is not the James who wrote the letter that we studied all last year. Back to the story. So when those men arrived from Jerusalem, Peter began to draw back. And eventually, he separated himself from the Gentiles. He first refused to eat with them, and then eventually, he wouldn't spend any time with them at all. It turned out that he did that because he was afraid of these Judaizers that James had sent. The other Jesus followers who had been Jews before also joined Peter in this hypocrisy. And it finally got to the place where even Barnabas, of all people, was led astray and stopped fellowshipping with the Gentiles. They were clearly not acting in keeping with the truth. And the moment that became obvious to me, I confronted Peter in front of the whole group. I said to him, Peter, you're a Jew, yet you've been living by, like a Gentile all this time and not like a Jew. So why are you now telling the Gentiles, forcing the Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? To explain why I was asking this question in front of everyone, I said to Peter, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified 
not made right with God by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And because we know that, Peter, we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus so that we can be made right with God by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because we know, we all know, that no one will ever be made right with God by keeping the law. And that's the story from God's Word. I should point out here that there was more conversation before Paul and Peter were finished, but that's the gist of what Paul had to say. And if you want to hear the whole conversation, you could read Galatians chapter 2 on your own sometime this afternoon before the Super Bowl. Don't try to read it during the Super Bowl. I want you to notice that the Judaizers, the men that Paul says James sent, were adding something to the simple message of the gospel in keeping with the theme that we've been talking about. They were adding becoming a Jew by keeping the law to the simple message of the gospel. And as we mentioned before, they could not rob the gospel of its power, so they opted instead to rob the Jesus followers of the gospel. And they accomplished that, at least momentarily, with Peter and even Barnabas. Had not Paul caught this, well, then today we would not have the pure gospel available to us. In other words, they couldn't take the power away from the gospel, so they schemed instead and came up away with a way to take the gospel away from the Jesus followers. The, Jesus, the Judaizers did that because they wanted to give a, a meaning to the law that God never intended. And in the process, they took away the meaning of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And just so you understand, when we talk about the Judaizers and their insistence that, that we're saved by keeping the law, uh, we're not talking about a problem that the church faced 2,000 years ago. We're talking about something that is alive and well in the 21st century because there are still people out there who insist that we can have right standing with God if we keep the law. They will tell you that. The becoming a Jew part of all of that has largely faded over the years, but there are still splinter groups out there to this very day that teach that, that you have to become a Jew before you can become a follower of Jesus. But you need to know that this teaching that says you become part of God's kingdom by keeping the law is alive and well in our world today and in the church. And there are others who will tell you that we are saved by faith, that's their message, but then they add that we keep our salvation and our right standing with God by keeping the law. The book of Hebrews spoke to that when we looked at that whenever that was, 2018. In either of these cases, we're adding keeping the law to the gospel. And some of us have fallen for it. And in that light, I want to remind you of what we saw earlier in verses 6 and 7 of Galatians chapter 1. I am astonished, Paul says to the church at Galatia, that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Why did Paul say evidently? Because he saw it happening there in Galatia. They had messed with the, the message of the gospel because of the influence of the Judaizers. That's the very thing that we're talking about this morning. And adding the law is one of the ways that the darkness is perverting the gospel. That's the word Paul uses. As we've been saying, when we, when we pervert, when we change the gospel, that makes us ineffective in our message. 
The darkness doesn't do that by trying to take the power out of the gospel. The darkness does that by taking the gospel out of the hands of the church. Understand this. When you add keeping the law to the gospel, you change the gospel to a different gospel, and a different gospel is no gospel at all whenever you add or detract. I'm concerned you might infer, infer from what I've been saying that, that I believe that God's law is bad, but I don't want you to think that at all. I half agree with the Judaizers because I believe, like they do, that God's law is not only good, it's perfect. And I think the best way to illustrate that is to talk about a cold, fresh, icy glass of lemonade. Now, I, I know that winter's not usually the time when we talk about cold, fresh, icy glasses of lemonade, lemonade. but I got to ask you, and I know you don't, you know, some of you aren't going to raise your hand no matter what I say, but how many of you here this morning like a cold glass of lemonade? You've got most of the hands, well, some of you don't, clearly don't like lemonade, or you, anyway, all right, we, most of us, let's just do that. Most of us like lemonade, so let, let me ask you, while we're, while we're raising our hands, let me ask you, how many of you bathe in lemonade? Oh, well, one, one person, okay, um, who clearly needs help with other things, but that we can't offer this morning. How many of you wash your car with, with lemonade? How many of you use lemonade to paint your house? Uh, wait a minute, I... I I thought that you said that lemonade was good. So if lemonade is so good, why aren't you using it? Well, we don't use lemonade for those things, for putting oil. We don't use it as an oil additive in our car or wash our car or paint our house. We don't use, the, use lemonade for those things because that's not what lemonade is for. That's not why we have lemonade. That's not why God gave us lemonade. If you use lemonade as oil, it'll ruin your engine. If you use it to paint your house, you're going to have to paint your house every single day because it's really not going to have that much impact. And who knows what would happen if you tried to take a bath in lemonade. I, I mean, I guess you could get your dog to lick off all the stickiness, but then you'd have to own a dog, and, and once the dog is done, you'd need another bath in lemonade, but then you'd... Anyway, what, I, what I'm trying to say here is that lemonade is good, but in order for lemonade to be good, we have to use it the right way. We have to use it properly. And for those of you who are sitting there saying, Jay, get to your point, let's look at verse 8 of 1 Timothy 1. We know that the law is good if, if one uses it properly. The law is good, but only if you use it properly. And in that light, uh, I have to say that, that something is wrong with the mirror in our bathroom. And I believe I need your advice. Now, that's not the mirror in our bathroom, but it's very like it. The mirror in our bathroom is four feet by, by six feet and very heavy, and it's attached to the wall above the sinks there in the bathroom uh, using some really big clips that hold it in place because it's, well, it's so heavy. I, I look at my reflection in that mirror every morning uh, before I head out into the big world, and, and I'm always glad that I've done that because there's always something that clearly needs to be addressed about my appearance uh, and taken care of I, uh, before I, I meet my adoring public. Uh, every morning, the mirror tells me that I need a shave. Every morning it says the same thing. And often there's this, you know, this crusty stuff right here in the corner of my eyes. And, and sometimes I can't see stuff that's stuck in my teeth uh, without looking in the mirror because I can't see my teeth. Uh, but I suspect that I have them. Um, and and the, uh, the remarkable thing is that the mirror in the morning never tells me that I need to comb my hair. But uh, 
that's a different problem. You see, I, I stand and I look at my reflection. Here's the problem. I, mean, I stand and look at my reflection for a moment, and then I get busy doing what needs to be done, and that's where I run into, into difficulty. I don't know if it's because I, I've gotten older and weaker or what might be the problem, but I use that mirror that to, to show me, that heavy mirror to show me uh, what needs to be done to me, but, but as I've gotten older, it's become increasingly difficult to, to reach up and, and bend back those clips and, and grab the mirror in my hands and pull it down off the wall so that I can rub, rub it all over my face and eyes and, and teeth. Uh, it's, just, it's just not as simple as it used to be. I'm trying to say is the mirror is a great help when I'm trying to see the mess I'm in, but it doesn't seem to be of any help when it, when it comes to dealing with the mess that I'm in. It's just an awful lot of work in taking that down and rubbing it all over my face, and it doesn't actually accomplish what I want it to. And that's, what I need, that's where I need your advice. What would you suggest to me that I do to overcome the difficulty that I'm having with my mirror Every day, with my mirror not doing what I want it to do, even though I invest a great deal of effort in rubbing it all over my face and, and head and teeth. If I were genuinely having this problem, I, I know you'd say, Jay, you really do need help. Um, I, when, I, when I'm in a grocery store and someone approaches me and says, D do you need help? I always say, well, my wife says I do, but... Um, but, but since you may have guessed that I'm only using this as an illustration, you might be inclined to say, Jay, you're having that problem with your mirror because you're asking your mirror to do something that a mirror is not designed to do. You're asking it to do something the mirror cannot do. And that's exactly the same problem that everyone runs into when they expect that they can get right standing with God by keeping the law. God... Oh, hear me. It's another one of these places where I'd stand in the pulpit if it would help. God did not give us his law with the intention that the law would be able to give us right standing with him. God's intention in giving us the law is the same as our intention when we look in the mirror. We expect the mirror to point out how very much work needs to be done, but we don't expect the mirror to be any help at all in cleaning up the mess that we are clearly in when we look in the mirror. And in the same way, God's law lacks the ability to make us righteous in the same way that the mirror lacks the ability to make us clean. You know, Faith and I sometimes travel together to a, a place where I'm going to be speaking or I'm going to be up in front of people. When we arrive at that place after a day's travel, sometimes I often ask Faith if I need to look in a mirror. <laughs> I've, I've stopped asking her to, you know, weigh in on how I look. But do I need to look in a mirror? And, and sometimes she'll say, no, you, you look good. But other times she finds the courage to say, yeah, you, you, you better go look. And you, you should take a change of clothes in there with you. And that means that sometimes I don't have to look in the mirror. I don't have to look in the mirror because I know that I look okay because of what my wife has said about me. And that's what we discover about ourselves. That's what we discover about ourselves when we add verse, the first part of verse 9 to verse 8. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is not, is made not for the righteous. The law is made not for the righteous. Righteous people, the law was not made for righteous people. And don't worry about stopping short there because Paul wants us to understand first 
But God has no intention that righteous people use his law. God has no intention that righteous people use his law. It is made not for righteous people. We're about to look at a list of people who should look into God's law, but, uh, but before we do, I want you to know that there's a list in 1 Corinthians that's very like, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that's very like the list that we're going to read in a few minutes. In that list, Paul tells us all, all the kinds of people who will never inherit the kingdom of God. And it's an awful, awful list, very like the one we're about to read. These people will never inherit the kingdom of God. But right after Paul shares that very incriminating list there in 1 Corinthians, he says this, 1 Corinthians 6, 11, and that is what some of you were. That is what some of you were, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. That is what some of you were, but you have been washed. You were a mess, but you were cleaned. You were made holy, and you've been made right with God because of what Jesus did for you on the cross and what God accomplished for you by His Spirit. And none of that had anything to do with you keeping the law. So if God didn't make His law for righteous people, for whom was the law made? Well, buckle your seatbelts. It's about to get bumpy. Look at what happens in verse 9. We also know that the law is not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. If we're going to be brutally honest this morning, then I think we'd all have to admit that we can see ourselves in that list, especially when Paul adds that phrase there in the end, whatever is contrary to sound doctrine. These are all things that are contrary to the teaching of the Word. These are things that are contrary to God's law. We all started out life as, as little tiny bundles of potentiality, but as we grew, it came that awful day when we saw God's law and understood that God hates sin and punishes sinful people. And it may be that some of us decided that we're going to start trying to keep the law, but soon discover that we simply cannot. The law condemns us, but it cannot commend us to a holy God. And that's where the gospel comes in. God entrusted the gospel to Paul, he says, and expected Paul to keep it pure and simple. And I, for one, am forever grateful that Paul took on that task, took it seriously, and actually accomplished it. And just so we're clear, the gospel that Paul handed down to the ages is that Christ Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried, and He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. You and I must understand that message because the gospel is the power of God that saves people. We're saved by the gospel, and others around us are saved by it as well, just so long as we keep that message pure and simple, and we make sure to share it with everyone God brings into our lives. Don't try to fancy up the gospel. Don't try to make it more appealing. Don't add anything to it. Don't take anything away from it. Preach it because the gospel 
That simple message is the good news that saves people. Don't let the enemy take the gospel out of your hands or heart. And as you hold tightly to the gospel, make sure that you use the law properly. Okay? Okay? Oh, I, it's a little dark in here. I couldn't see if you're still there. In closing, let me read the passage to you one more time. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Let me just add as I close, and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you are sanctified, but you were made right with God by the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Will you stand with me in the presence? Father and our God, we thank you today for your goodness, for your kindness, for for invading our lives as you have, for invading our stories, for implanting within our heart the story of Jesus who died for us, was buried and rose again on the third day. That has become part of our heritage, our story as we stand before you today. And by that simple message, we have been brought into right standing with you, and it is that that gives us permission to come into your presence and ask you to continue to work in our hearts in ways that only you can. Do what only you can do in our lives, we pray, God. And thank you, especially at this moment, for the privilege we have of mentioning the name of Jesus to you every time we pray. Amen and amen. We need to share the gospel with folks. We need to make sure that the message we're sharing with people is a message that's true, is a message that's pure, is a message that's simple. And uh, I'd, I'd like to, uh, just before we go, the message of the gospel, have a shot at saying it with me, is that Christ Jesus died for our sins. Not everybody all at the same time. Christ Jesus died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. He was buried, and He was raised again the third day according to the Scriptures. How much simpler could it be? Use that message with your kids, with your friends, with your neighbors, with your coworkers, with your classmates, with everybody that God brings into your life so that they can come into right standing with God as well. All right? That's the assignment for this week. We've huddled up, and, uh, and now we're going well, to head out that door and run the play, right? So all that's left for me, oh, by the way, enjoy the Super Bowl. I apologize that, uh, that there's no team playing there that you care about. But, but you have the privilege, if you're from Missouri, you have the privilege of not caring about the Rams because we all know where they came from, right? Okay, I mean, if you need somebody to cheer for, maybe you can do it on that. I don't know, but enjoy, enjoy the Super Bowl and, uh, you know, don't, don't be too sad that the Chiefs aren't there. There's always next year. God bless you. Ready? Go get them, Potter's House.